It's a huge understatement to say we're in an unprecedented time right now. Just think about all the shit we're dealing with as a country. In no particular order, here's the list. A racial reckoning, a pandemic that's killed over 200,000 Americans, a presidential election in which the first debate was an absolute shit show because of our current president's rude behavior. There also was this tidy little bombshell the New York Times dropped last week in which they obtained tax documents that show that in 2016 and 2017, the president paid $750 in personal income taxes each year. I put this on social media. America, you need a drink, not a drink, a drink, because a drink is a two or three finger pour. And it feels like that's what we all need right now. Now, just as we're trying to process all of this, then comes the news that the president and first lady Melania Trump have both tested positive for coronavirus. Go home, 2020. You're drunk. With all of this going on, I thought it was appropriate for the word of the week to be empathy. Now, I chose that word because in the wake of the president's diagnosis, a lot of people believe folks should just set aside differences, their dislike, maybe even their hatred, and have empathy for the president, who, as of the taping of this podcast, was taken to Walter Reed Hospital, where doctors recommended he stay for a few days as a precautionary measure. Make of that what you will. But here's why the people calling for empathy need to stand down. There's a difference between empathy and sympathy. Empathy is when you put yourself in another person's shoes. You can relate to their feelings, thoughts, and attitude. A lot of people are unable to be empathetic toward the president right now because his response to the coronavirus has been unquestionably reckless. We can't empathize with that. He's the same person who called the virus a hoax. He's the same person who was heard on tape acknowledging that the virus was airborne and deadly only to continually downplay the virus to the American public. Downplay actually isn't even the word. He straight up lied. He's the same person who has been pressuring states to reopen all because he didn't want it to impact his reelection chances or the stock market. He's the same person who mocked fellow Republican Mitt Romney after he tested negative for coronavirus. He's the same person who at the first presidential debate ridiculed Joe Biden for wearing a mask. And when Biden told Trump that hosting rallies during a pandemic was irresponsible, Trump boasted that his rallies had no negative effects even though Herman Cain died of coronavirus after attending one of his rallies in late July. And he also is the same person who decided to still attend a fundraiser after being told that one of his senior aides, Hope Hicks, tested positive for coronavirus. Even though you're supposed to quarantine immediately after being in direct contact with someone who's had the virus. So who knows how many others will be infected because of the president's foolishness. To have empathy for Trump, means you can relate to his spirit of recklessness and irresponsibility. Sorry, I can't. And many others can't either. We can't relate to being so stubborn, selfish, and narcissistic that you minimize the threat of this virus for your own political gain. Over 200,000 people are dead in this country, in large part because of the incompetent and failed leadership of the president. If people aren't exactly ready to shower him with positive thoughts, they have a right to sit in their anger and frustration, especially those who have lost their loved ones, lost their job, or God knows what else, and had to watch how in word and deed this president never took this virus seriously. I don't have empathy for the president, but I do have sympathy for him. And I wish him and his wife well and hope they recover and don't suffer some of the lingering effects that this virus supposedly creates. That many others have suffered, even though. We all know that had this been Joe Biden who contracted coronavirus, it's unlikely that Trump would have extended anything beyond snide remarks. And if you think I'm being harsh, ask John McCain's family. You can wish somebody well and not feel sorry for them at the same time. You are not required, however, to feel empathetic. Our word of the week. Now on to today's show. My guest today is somebody I've wanted to have a conversation with for a long time because his opinions are always earnest, thoughtful, and informed. And that's just related to basketball. Now, his opinions outside of basketball are equally well thought out. And dare I say, 
as much as I like what he says about basketball and more importantly, how he coaches basketball, I think I look forward to his opinions on current events and politics and race more than his opinions related to his profession. Anyway, he's won eight NBA championships as a player and a coach. He's just a dazzling basketball mind. Uh, Up next, we're going to discuss the NBA bubble, politics, what the Warriors are going to do with the number two pick, and much, much more. Steve Kerr coming your way on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Steve, I want to start off by playing a game with you called Ask a White Person. <laughs> yes, let's go. I feel, like, I feel like you're qualified. I don't know. It's like <laughs> uh, you, you are most suited to answer this question because you fit two categories. You are white and you were a professional basketball player. Now, as someone who's an NBA coach, who I imagine has been paying rapt attention to the NBA playoffs, I'm sure you saw it when Clippers forward Matres Harrell called Luka Doncic a, quote, bitch-ass white boy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which created quite a bit of conversation about, um, you know, language and um, the, the differing things you can say to one another on a basketball court. So I would like to ask you, as a member of the, the white basketball community, was this insulting? Um, did you find it racist that Matras Harold called Luka Doncic? Man, you just come out firing, don't firing. you? Come on, just, let's go. Uh, Fastballs. Nice to see you too, Jamel. I'm doing fine. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, gosh, those are those are good questions. Um, and I, you know, I was um, I was not a talker, but if anybody said something to me. I was firing back, you know, I was a little sensitive. So if anybody said that to me, I'd be yelling back. Um, if you're a white guy, um, race is totally off limits in, in the NBA. You can't, you can't say anything race related when you're trash talking. It's in reverse. It's sort of accepted. It's just the way it is. And, um, it's not, you know, I don't think I would have, you know, taken offense really. It it more would have just sounded like, trash talk, like NBA trash talk. So I didn't think it was that big of a deal, but I, I can understand people who would think it's a big deal because, you know, you kind of want kind of want the two-way street, right? Um, because if it had been the other way around, it would have been a huge deal, right? And so that's where the discussion starts to, to turn. So I am not uh, exactly here for the false equivalence because I thought it was one that was going on. Um, because there's a, the word, if you call it a, a black man, a boy, as you know, that has a much more loaded racial history. If Luca Doncic was offended at anything, it should have been the bitch ass part. That's what I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was the offensive part. It's like that got overlooked, I thought. But on the court, um, as somebody who's playing in the sport where you are the, the minority, uh, or at least in the NBA, obviously you were the, the minority, um, have you been called something similar while while you've been playing while you were playing in pro basketball? I don't I don't, re- I don't recall ever being called um, anything. You know, bitch ass, yes, <laughs> but just not the white boy. Not part. the white boy part. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the false equivalence either. You know, I mean, I I, I understand, um, you know, that racism in general um, is a complex. Uh, sort of system of um, socialization, right? It's not, you know, somebody uses the N word. Oh, he's a racist, but but I'm not. You know, it's it's so complex. It's racism is really about the system, and it's about um, how this this uh, culture that we live in and how um, white people are, are able to thrive in this system by sort of being ignorant to a lot of it because it, it it's not part of our world. Um, but we are allowed to sit on the sidelines and, and say, well, I'm not, I'm not racist. You know, the guys with the hoods on, you know, they're the racist ones. I'm not racist, but it doesn't work that way because we're all part of this system. And if you got, uh, you know, every white person saying I'm not racist, but you have a racist system, then you got to be able to explain that. You know, the dynamics on a basketball team, I, I think 
um, when I think about some of the white players that are both in the league currently, and even some of those who have who have been in 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 the past, even during your era, I don't know if it's just me romanticizing the NBA or basketball, but it seems like the white players in the NBA have a much more keen understanding of race than say white NFL players do. Um, like there's much more of a division there when it comes to race and I don't know if it's because you have position groups on a team and so sometimes you're just with people you know like if you're playing on the office line let's be honest a lot of offensive linemen are white and so they tend to be segregated within their own unit um, and with their own coaches but it just seems like much more sort of segregation when it comes to talking about racial issues uh, even though I know they're discussed in in pro football locker rooms as well as well but there just seems to be a different what is it about basketball that allows um you know white players to develop maybe a different level and a more complex understanding of race it's a great question and and i don't know that i have the answer um i i do think it really matters that uh, the nba leadership uh you know adam silver and david stern before him uh nba management has always been very supportive of uh, players right to speak out and uh, to make our voices heard and to feel comfortable in, um, in dealing with issues of race and, and uh, social injustice. And it, in fact, now it feels like we're partners. And I think that has to matter. I mean, you, you contrast that with the NFL, who basically refused to acknowledge what Colin Kaepernick was actually doing and, and really played to their fan base. Um, it's two totally different ways of approaching things. And, and I think the players feel that. So maybe, maybe some of it has to do with, with just the way the, you know, the powers that be in, in each respective league has approached these issues. Uh, how much did playing uh, basketball shape your attitudes and your understanding of race in America? Well, I think it, I mean, it, the one thing it did was it, it uh, put me around black people for my whole life. You know, my, uh, basically my whole life. My uh, junior high school uh, in Los Angeles uh, was integrated. So from junior high and my high school was as well. Um, so from junior high on, I, I had black teammates. And so I was, I made a lot of friends uh, and, and it became normal to have black teammates and interact with black people. Having said that, like these last few months have been really almost humiliating for me because I think as an athlete, sometimes you fall back on, I got black teammates. I'm friends with black people. Like, like I, you know, I, I know, I know this. We don't know this. None of us know this. White people don't understand um, the forces of racism in our country. And I think what's happening right now is really sort of a reckoning, uh, to all of us to, to learn and to understand uh, why uh, racism is so uh, prevalent and, and powerful. And, and not only that, it, it's, it's, and this should not be about white guilt. You know, um, I shouldn't feel guilty, but I should feel responsible for my part in it all. Right. So if I am able to see, um, where racism is taking hold in society, then I should take action, whatever that means. And so um, I think it's really been eye-opening uh, the last few months because I frankly feel like I was oblivious to a lot of that for all these years. Well, you're somebody who I would consider who does have a very enhanced view of 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 racism in America um, based off some of your commentary and 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 you made it know what's important to you. So I'm a little surprised that you would have that viewpoint. What's the blind spot do you think that you have or had? I think the, the blind spot is 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 in the awareness that just because you consider yourself a good person and you have black friends and you even do charitable work and raise money for organizations that maybe, um, you know, are, are, you know, trying to help black communities. That doesn't mean you're not complicit in the system. 
that was my blind spot, I think. Um, and I think, um, you know, Robin D'Angelo's book, um, White Fragility, was really, really powerful for me. And uh, the last four or five months, I've, I've, I've really kind of dedicated my reading uh, towards um, issues of racism. And, um, and D'Angelo's book was the one that was really geared towards, hey, white people, like this one, this one is for you, you know. I read the new Jim Crow, which was amazing, and I think should be uh, required reading for for everybody, um, especially white Americans, to understand the the system, mass incarceration, and what's happening out there. But the white fragility one was fascinating because um, the author really gives you a different perspective on what exactly racism is, and it takes you much deeper into why racism is 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 so dominant still in our society. And it, it forces you to look in the mirror and say, all right, something's, something's up and we, we're, we are part of it, whether we believe we're a good person or not, it's happening. And so that, that requires a reckoning. Yeah, I mean, racism is not, well, in, in some ways it's about being a good or a bad person. But I do think in, um, in our country, as we are having probably the most, um, detailed and prolonged racial conversation. I can certainly remember in my life uh, that there is a lot of white people in particular who feel that this is about, you know, making them feel guilty, making them feel, um, you know, uh, uh, remorseful or what, whatever emotion or even getting defensive about it. And it's like, no, I don't think they realize or most people realize the degree in which some of the things we're learning now, we are not either taught or understand about our own uh, American history. You're uh, you're obviously you're not in a bubble now, uh, and the Warriors. You're not with your team. In in other words, is there a part of you? I, I don't know if you probably had some side conversations with some of your your team. But do you you is there some of you that wish during this particular time with everything going in the country that you guys were, you know, kind of all together to discuss some of this stuff? Yes, on many levels. Um you know, on a basketball level, these teams in Orlando have gotten a couple of months ahead of, of the other eight teams that aren't uh, aren't together. Um, and, and so that's concerning, you know. Um, and next season, who knows when that's going to start. But it's a really long time to go without being on the floor. But also just being together to have these discussions uh, about what's happening in our country right now. Um, th these are really important times and, and, and I think important moments for our team too, um, not only to, uh, make sure we are educating ourselves, but, uh, the bonding that can occur through conversation is really crucial too. Um, stick over the basketball end of it, uh, watching how things are going in the bubble, are you even, even though the NBA leadership has been miles ahead of other leadership structures in professional sports, but are even you surprised at how well they have pulled this off? Yes. Yeah, I really am. Uh, I, you know, especially judging from the uh, early conversations with the league on what they were trying to pull off. I mean, this is a gargantuan effort when you think about everything that went into putting together this, this bubble. Um, to the finest detail, and the games have been fun to watch, and and uh, I'm really proud, you know, to be part of the league and to to see uh, the way the players have carried themselves and the way the um, the league management has um, has kind of pulled this whole thing off. Because I, I thought it was sort of a fifty fifty endeavor when they first started talking about it. Just from a pure basketball standpoint, what's the biggest difference you notice between basketball in the bubble and basketball outside of the bubble? Well, I think, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not there. So it's, uh, but I've, I've talked to Bob Myers, uh, our general manager with the Warriors, and he went down there for several days to do some scouting. And, um, you know, I asked him about the atmosphere and he said, and he saw playoff games. And he he said it's it's such a different vibe, and and I don't think you can just remove the pressure of twenty thousand fans on the road all screaming at you as you rise up for a shot. You compare that to being in an empty gym, even though it's still the playoffs and it's on TV. 
it feels looser. It doesn't feel as tense um, as as it might otherwise be, you know, with fans in the stands, as we've always seen. Uh, you know, the, the level of play has been really good. Uh, players are competing. Coaches are, are, are really doing an amazing job. So I've been impressed. When you look at the officiating, Steve, do you notice any difference in the bubble? <laughs> no, they're still as bad as they've always been. <laughs> wait, wait, strike that, strike that. Yes, we'll kill that. We won't kill that. <laughs> no, you can, you can keep That's it. That's a joke, people. It's yes. a joke. It, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, if anything, I have great respect for the officials, um, the players, the coaches, the, uh, the league management, all the people who have been down there and committed, you know, months away from their homes and their families. Um, it's, uh, it's remarkable. And what they've all, what every single person has sacrificed for the good of the league, um, is, uh, is really important. And I recognize all that. So I'm, I'm really, um, grateful for everybody down there. Um, you know, because we don't know what stage our country will be in, um, particularly since from a world and global standpoint, we've had one of the poorest pandemic responses. Uh, what are your thoughts on the NBA having to, if they have to create a regular season kind of bubble? Well, I know just from speaking with my uh, coaching colleagues and friends who were already in the current one, that it's uh, not something that sounds appealing to anybody. Um, and, and the league knows that, I mean, the players don't want to be away from their families, uh, for another chunk of months on end. And, um, nobody wants that, but, um, you know, I, I think the league is aware that, um, a lot of things are outside of their control. And, uh, so they have to plan for everything and we'll see what that means. Watching though all the basketball, it feel, reminds me of a like an NCAA tournament kind of environment. You know, I assume anytime. Granted, it's been a little while since you had the experience not being in the playoffs and certainly not being the team to beat. But what's it been like for you to be an outsider? You know, looking at these games being played. I enjoy uh, games coming on at ten thirty in the morning on the West Coast on a I'm Tuesday. Not, that is awesome. People don't understand yes. how great that it's is. It's awesome. It yeah. is great. And it does feel like the NCAA tournament, you know, where on a on a work day, on a school day, there's games on all day. Uh, from that standpoint, it's been great. Um, I do feel a level of uh, jealousy that uh, we're not there competing. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, it, I, I was talking with Draymond uh, maybe a month ago, right when the playoffs were starting. So a few weeks ago, and he said, uh, he said basically what I've been feeling now, which is, when the bubble began, it was kind of like, man, we dodged a bullet and we're not in the bubble. And then when the playoffs began, it was like, man, I wish I was there, you know? So it's, uh, you miss the competition for sure, but you're, you know, you're also aware of the sacrifice that all those guys have made who were down there. Speaking of Draymond, I've had the pleasure of working with him uh, on some TNT stuff. I was at flew to Atlanta, did the show called The Arena that had him, Chuck, hosted by Carrie Champion and myself. What do you think of Draymond, the TV analyst? He's a natural. Um, he will be whenever he wants. You know, he'll be he'll be a network analyst and and. Uh, He'll do it for as long as he wants. He's he's just really good. He knows the game. He's one of the smartest players I've ever been around, and he can talk. So pretty good combination. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I tell people, you know, one of the reasons why I, Charles Barkley may be, you know, as great of a player as Charles Barkley was, but I think at at this point, you could definitely make the case that his his career as an analyst has surpassed his playing career, which is very bizarre to say, considering we're talking about a former MVP, somebody who took a team to the finals, you know, a ton of other awards, Hall of Famer. Draymond's the first player I've seen that I say, that guy could be the next Charles Barkley. I've never said that about anybody else um, because that's how rare a Charles Barkley is. But I can see that in Draymond, that he has huge potential. Um, he has just got to make sure that he's not fine for tampering. <laughs> <laughs> How much of a laugh did you get out of that? Yeah, yeah, I got a, I got a chuckle out of it. It, it wasn't all that surprising. We're kind of used to Draymond getting fined. Uh, it's kind of part of the package, but uh, 
No, it, it was uh, it was fun watching him just because for what you just said. I mean, he he's got it right. He's he's just got it. And, you know, Charles, as you said, was as great of a player as he was. And he was you know one of the all time greats. He's arguably a better broadcaster than a player. And um, Draymond, defensive player of the year, uh, multiple time champion, all star. He he has a chance to be a better broadcaster than player. And that's, and that's really saying something. So um, it's just, you know, that, that combination um, of, uh, of game awareness and wit um, and presence. um, It's, it's very rare. One of the things we've seen in the bubble is that the players have been extremely persistent in discussing uh, racial injustice and discussing inequality because uh, there was some concern before the bubble started that where we were in the moment in the country that once the game started the players would go back to playing the games and not really talk about everything else that's come up in the country that has not been the case at all um, what are your thoughts about how the players have stayed vigilant about these issues it's been um, it's been inspiring you know um who was the player who was interviewed yesterday right after the game, after the big win, and he immediately steered the conversation uh, to uh, social justice. I'm trying to think. Oh, it was Chris Paul. Chris yes, Paul. talking about voting. Yeah, I mean, a huge game. They just, you know, another comeback. They tie the series at two. Um, he played a great game. He had every every reason if he wanted to to be, you know, so excited that he could have forgotten about uh, that mission, and he went right into the discussion, and, uh, and I think it's great because um, really we need to be slapped, we need to be hit over the head with a two by four um, in order to really confront this stuff. We just do, and and um, and that's um, I think that's what the players are are feeling, and that's and the coaches too, and the and the whole league, and and so many people around the country. Um, that's why you see how many more written on some of the players' jerseys. You know, uh, imagine what happened to Jacob Blake um, happening at at any time in our nation's history. But right now, you know, like there was no thought, given everything that we've watched and read and seen, a nation up in arms, a, you know, people talking about police violence, and and they're. Just no no thought, shoot a guy seven times in the back. So the frustration for for everybody is apparent, and the players know they have a powerful platform, and they're going to use it. Uh, yeah, I think there are people, because the ratings are down in the NBA, they're trying to make a causation there, that because the players are talking so much about social justice, that because it's in your face, that that's turning viewers off who are NBA fans who just want – and I know this phrase all too well, who just want uh, players to stick to sports. What's, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, uh, if it, I, I got to think that uh, ratings would have more to do with uh, games happening, um, you know, later in the summer um, and um, happening with no fans and happening um, at times when they're normally – not happening. Ten thirty on a work day. Um, of course, the ratings are down. Uh, are there some fans who have been turned off um, by this and aren't watching? Probably, uh, but there there are probably some who are inspired by it and are uh, and have turned the TV on to see what the players are are saying. So, um, I I I don't think uh, the the beauty of it is that I don't think the players care about anybody turning the TV off um, because of what they're saying. That's not the point. The point is we have to uh, collectively do something to uh, change a system that is that is broken. Oh, Steve, you and I have something in common other than our love of Pinot Noir, which I'm going to ask you about later on in this podcast. Uh, we also are uh, people who 
seemed to stir up the president for some reason. <laughs> for some reason, the president just doesn't like us. I don't know why that could be. Uh, we're going to talk about that. And again, uh, your love of wine, because I'm looking to be educated on some on, on some Pinot Noir, uh, that and a whole lot more. And don't think I'm going to let you get out of here without telling me who the Warriors are picking um, in the NBA draft, because <laughs> clearly you're going to tell me this. Of course. Uh, that and more. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more with Steve Kerr. Now, uh, one of the blessings of the pandemic is that we got to see the last dance earlier uh, than was originally scheduled. Uh, the complete manifesto of everything Michael Jordan, your former teammate. And of course, you told the story, Steve, of what happened in practice between you and Michael Jordan and uh, how you, uh, unfortunately, your face suffered uh, a little bit of a calamity <laughs> dealing with Jordan. Uh, was it, um, I don't know if you got this sense, um, through social media or maybe even through conversation, but what was amazing to me is I forget that I saw it in real time. You saw it in real time, but there's a whole generation of basketball fans who did not see this, see Michael Jordan in real time. So for them, it was like a real education. Was it startling to you that the last dance people had to be reminded of how good Michael Jordan was? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe we had to be reminded how old we are. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's one of those two things. Um, I think the way I think about it is, um, you know, now that I'm 54, you know, when 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 you and I were growing up and I think I'm older than you, so don't please don't take offense to, to that comment. But, you know, when you and I were growing up, we we heard names that we probably didn't see, but we recognized, right? Uh, whether it was, you know, Willie Mays, you know, I'm a big baseball fan. I used to read about Willie Mays. I never really saw Willie Mays play. I just knew he was phenomenal. You know, uh, Babe Ruth is obvious. Everybody knows Babe Ruth, but we didn't see Babe Ruth play. And so I think what, what I realized uh, watching the last dance with, you know, hearing all these stories from our players or my own kids even, um, is that that's just, you know, Michael is the modern version of Willie Mays was to me or, or, you know, even Babe Ruth. It's just, they, they know the name, they know, you know, he's possibly the greatest of all time, but they never really saw him play up close and personal. And so that was my favorite thing about the documentary is that it reminded everybody just how dominant he was. Uh, there were some of your former teammates who seemed to take issue with how they were portrayed in the, the series. What did you think about how you were portrayed in it? I thought I was, frankly, portrayed a little too much, <laughs> a little too often. Um, you know, it, it was, uh, it, it's interesting because, you, you know, you make a documentary like that, you, you, you even, even though it was 10 hours of, of coverage, there's, you, they could have gone on and done 50 hours probably. Uh, but I know a lot of us felt like Ron Harper and Luke Longley should have been mentioned. They were starters on, on that team. And, uh, actually starters on, you know, all three championship teams. And we really didn't get much reference to them. And uh, so it was a little bit um, embarrassing that I was on there so often. But but I understand the, the filmmakers, you know, had to focus on, you know, what they, what they wanted and wh who was accessible. Luke's buried somewhere down in Western remote Australia. And, and, uh, so there, you know, there were some things that I would have liked to have seen, but um, but all in all, I mean, you know, they uh, they captured that that era really well, and um, I think all of us were a little disappointed um, in the depiction of Scotty Pippen. Um, a couple of times, you know, they they showed him miss a couple of big free throws. We all missed big free throws. You know, I don't know why we had they had to show that on the on the documentary. Um, it just seemed like there was, there were a couple shots at him that were unnecessary that maybe were just used to kind of provide some edge and, uh, a little more texture to what was happening back then with his relationship, um, you know, with, with the management and with Michael and Scotty was everybody's favorite player on that team. Everybody loves Scotty Pippen. Um, one of, one of the most amazing players and teammates I've ever had. So, um, but. I'm rambling now. So I, I thought I thought all in all, they did a, a great job with it. 
I was here for Ron Harper. <laughs> I, I would maybe throwing Craig Elo under the bus with, is a is a little dramatic. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, when he talked about how he didn't wind up on Michael Jordan, <laughs> that was one of my favorite parts when Jordan hit, of course, that big shot yeah. uh, over Cleveland. Uh, was there anything that you learned about Michael Jordan in the last dance that you didn't know? Well, I never um, anticipated that he would get emotional. Um, and that was, that was, um, moving, you know, it was, it, and, and it was something that he, he rarely, if ever showed back then, you know, and I think part of, uh, his, um, uh, presence back then was never showing weakness. And that was clearly demonstrated in the, uh, in the telling of the story, but in the retelling of the story, he, he gets emotional several times. And I, I, I was, I was moved by that. Um, uh, of course, you know, when you play, um, you know, especially because Michael Jordan kind of, you know, he was a guy who was a, a global icon. Uh, he took a lot of criticism for how he didn't speak up. And I think a lot of athletes during that time, you know, were focused on kind of the blueprint that he had in terms of marketability and and kind of being a little on the fence so that you didn't, you know, kind of piss anybody off. Obviously, today we're in a different time. Um, have you thought about if you were playing now, how you might have personally decided to respond to everything happening in our country? I feel like I would have been pretty vocal um, about things. Um, yeah, you're right, though. At the time, it it wasn't very common. And to be honest, the times maybe didn't call for it as much. I mean, obviously, there were still some horrible things happening, but uh, I think we were in a much more... Um, calm period in our nation's history. Um, and so as a result, there, there just, there seemed to be a, a calmer uh, tone everywhere and athletes for the most part kind of stayed out of things. Now that wasn't true in the late sixties, you know, in the civil rights era when Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown and a lot of black athletes were really vocal, but in the nineties, eighties and nineties, it, it seemed like there was, um, Kind of a lull in that area, uh, but these days there's so many outlets uh, and there's so much coverage. And not only that, you get asked about it every day today. Back then, nobody really ever asked you anything about what was happening socially. You had to seek someone out and, and bring it up yourself. Um, when you uh, you know look at like all the conversations we're having right now, we're we're very close to an election you have chosen to be extremely outspoken about how you feel about uh not just what's happening in our nation but about this presidential administration so much so that donald trump knows you by name um how did that make you feel to be singled out and criticized by the president it was it was really strange it was it was very weird and i know you know you know the feeling because you were you were called out by him too um it felt so um kind of slimy, you know, it's like, really? Like we got, we don't have anything bigger on the agenda today, you know? And, uh, but I was also uh, kind of ashamed because his comments came on the heels of the uh, discussion about China after Daryl Morey's comments. And uh, it was probably the one time in my career where I was very unsure about what I should say. And I felt, I didn't feel pressured by anybody, but I felt sort of cornered um, by my own uh, circumstances uh, in terms of how I should respond. And my response was terrible. And so in some ways I deserved the criticism that I got, but not really from the president because, uh, you know, he, he, there was, especially on the China issue, um, because we can go into all kinds of detail about how, you know, his relationship with uh, the Chinese government and the, and the trade agreement, we could, we could, we could talk about all that. And there's, there's plenty to, plenty to discuss on that front if he wanted to go, you know, in that direction. Um, and of course it was a very popular thing for a lot of conservatives to do when it came to the NBA is that they used um you know, Daryl Morey, his tweet about Hong Kong 
And they use that to try to attack NBA players, um, uh, NBA personnel such as yourself and LeBron James. And all of a sudden the NBA had to stand up to big bad uh, China. Um, you know, how did, aside from the president, to see so many of our lawmakers using the NBA as basically a political talking point, uh, what were your thoughts on that? Well, it was, it was a little ironic because we do so much business with China across the board. I mean, there's thousands of, of countries that or companies that do business over there. Um, and our government has to negotiate trade agreements with them. And, and so, you know, everybody has to sort of do that dance, you know, between, all right, um, we've got a, a business deal where we're making money from China, um, but there are civil rights abuses going on there that we know about. And so how do you reconcile that? And those kinds of questions are never black and white. If they were, if they were black and white, uh, we would withdraw all businesses from China and we would say, okay, we're never doing business with China again. And obviously we're not doing that across, across the board. Um, it, it's too, it's too deeply entwined in the world economy. Um, so there's this is the whole point about modern um, conversation. There's so much nuance and, and complexity in every conversation, and yet we choose to make everything good and evil, right and wrong, uh, black and white, and we, we try to simplify it as if it's that simple. Have you reached out or talked to Daryl Morey at all? Yeah, yeah. Daryl and I spoke at that time, and... Uh, you know, he he called me back then, and then I called him later on, and we we had a couple of good conversations, and and uh, so I think he felt bad for, you know, unwittingly dragging me into it, and I felt bad for not uh, initially backing him up, um, and uh, so we had we had a couple of good conversations, but it didn't obviously none of that stopped you from staying vocal as we turn toward this elections. Um, what are your feelings about how things stand uh, in terms of <laughs> whether or not, uh, I guess I'll just plainly say it, whether or not we have the ability to upend this fool about our office? Like, how do you how do you feel uh, about those chances? I mean, because I'll be honest, like every day. I feel differently about it and it's never a good feeling. I feel still as unsettled as I have in the last four years. I can't even believe that he's still here four years later. I'm like, how did we not get rid of him like already? So uh, what are your feelings as we head in, into the election? Well, I mean, how confident I, do you feel? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel pretty good about it. I mean, I think this time around, I think you'll see a, a much bigger turnout uh, amongst young people, especially uh, I don't think that Hillary Clinton inspired a lot of Democrats to get out and vote, whereas I think, uh, ironically, Donald Trump will inspire a lot of Democrats to get out and vote uh, now. And um, so I think I think there will be a bigger turnout. And and as we know, uh, Hillary won popular vote by three million votes last time. And with a bigger turnout, I think the popular vote will be expanded, uh, the popular vote margin, I should say. Um that's a guess, but um, uh, it, and then it comes down to all those swing states, and and that's why so many people are doing so much work in the swing states in specific uh, to uh, to try to make the difference where it, where it matters. You know, looking at your Twitter feed, you have certainly given a lot of time and attention when it comes to voter suppression. We all know the atrocity happening with our, our post office. When you look at the fact that we're in 2020 and we're still on voter suppression, you know, how does that make you feel that we can't even guarantee, you know, fair elections in this country? Well, that, that kind of takes me back to the, the new Jim Crow. Uh, the, the, the book was so powerful because it, it sort of laid out how, um, Racism has gotten more nuanced and sophisticated as time has gone on. Um, so, you know, whereas, you know, a couple hundred years ago, there was actual uh, violence at the polls. Um, now there's, um, you know, much more subtle ways of sort of keeping people from from voting. Um, but it's um, it's it's still there. You know, it's um, it's still a powerful force. And and um Honestly, what I think the best thing that could happen for this country would be for the Republican Party to reimagine itself and 
you know, if they were to lose this election, both at the presidential level and at the Senate level, maybe it would initiate some kind of shift. But I think we needed a, a solid Republican Party uh, that would appeal to the changing demographics in this country. There are a lot of conservative people out there um, who are looking for a party that actually appeals to their their beliefs, their thoughts. And I'm all for that because as long as it's uh, you know something that is uh, values based um, and something that is worthy of conversation, yes, let's let's let everybody vote and let's have two really strong parties and let's have real debate about how to fix our problems and and let's have intelligent people who can actually sort of have these discussions and you know take our country along on a good path. But right now we are the furthest thing from that. We we're just, uh, as, uh, Tom Friedman writes, you know, we're the, we're the Sunnis and the Shiites, you know, in, in the middle East, we're, we're warring factions in our own country. You know, we're not, uh, we're not all Americans, you know, kind of pulling together and that's what we've got to somehow get to. And it's a big complex question. How do, how do we do that? Well, I've always thought that sports was one of the ways that that actually kind of happens, right? That's uh, that's the the beauty. Um, you know, a lot of people don't do things in this country together, but one of the things we still do is like we we watch sports together. We root for the same teams. Um, hence why I think it's very important that athletes and coaches and and uh, people like you, uh, uh, you know, continue to voice um, or give voice to these issues. Along those same lines, though, I, I've got to imagine that by you being so vocal that not everybody has been happy with that. Uh, what kind of what kind of backlash have you received for being vocal? Yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I do some work in in Oakland with a great uh, grassroots organization called Live Free, uh, and um, one of the one of the projects they were part of was um, uh, they were working with the Oakland the city school system on um, ridding the school system of the police force that had been part of the school system um, for 20 years, maybe. And for 10 years, uh, parents and community members have been trying to make Oakland schools police free. And so I went into the community, talked a lot of, to a lot of parents, a lot of teachers, and they're adamant that the kids have to have a learning environment and not a police state in order to really thrive. So this is something that I uh, believed in. And so um, I, I made some comments about it and um, gave some interviews um, locally in the Bay Area and um, spoke from the heart. And fortunately, this measure was passed by the school board. So Oakland City Schools now no longer have uh, are going to have a police presence on campuses. Um, but it was a hugely controversial issue. Issue, and now I am known as uh, someone who believes in defunding the police. I've never made a I've never made a comment about defunding the police, and in fact, I think it's a terribly um, misleading phrase to say to to say defund the police. Um, I was referring to schools. Right. And the Oakland City School in particular, after listening to parents and teachers. Uh, but this is the kind of nuance and complexity that gets lost in today's world. So I t I'm taking all kinds of shit right now for, you know, being the guy who wants to defund the police. I happen to think the police should be reimagined, not not defunded. You know, I think we need police, but I think I think we need to reimagine the role of the police. Got to get back to protect and serve, not to chase down and murder. And that may sound extreme, but it's kind of the truth when you watch all these acts of violence happening. Just so you know, Steve, it's not real unless they call you a Marxist. When they call okay. you a Marxist. Oh, I'm not there that's yet. That's so you know it's real. <laughs> are you are you a Marxist, Jamil? I didn't know that. Uh, I ha I have been definitely called a Marxist. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, most of you people calling me that don't even know what that means. Like, stop it already. <laughs> it's like the word socialism, right? I mean, it just gets tossed around. It's like, so what happens when we bail out all these these uh, huge banks like that? Isn't that just corporate socialism? I mean, 
We've given so seems much. Like it. <laughs> it seems like it, but heaven forbid we give, you know, a starving family 600 bucks a week to pay their bills and buy some food, you know. But again, we get back to the the simplification of everything and the you know, the the warring factions and two sides and the power of misinformation and propaganda. It's it's put us in a terrible place as a country. Yeah, um now I know that uh, you've now been attached to the defund the police movement, which um, I actually, it makes sense. I just think they need a new name. They need right? a new name. It's like, yes, because all it is is moving funds or because uh, people don't realize how much the police um, force costs in every city. And that's not to say that, you know, the police, obviously they should be funded, but do they need military style weapons where they can invade countries? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> like that, that seems to be a little bit extreme. Uh, and I think once people really understand what people mean when they say that, uh, what they're talking about is a better word that you use, which is to reimagine. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the backlash that you're you're getting in the city, despite this backlash, and maybe not over this issue, this issue in particular, but just overall, um, what is it that makes you continue to speak out? I mean, you could easily, from your perch, you know, being a championship basketball coach, you could easily ignore and not care about these issues. What is it that continues to inspire you to do the opposite? Well, I think um, just a sense of moral obligation and, and a sense of, of being aware of how blessed and lucky I've been in my life and, um, you know, how, how much I have gained from growing up in this country. Um, so, you know, contrary to what the, 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 the crazed, uh, people would say about me, I actually love my country. They probably think I hate my country, right? Um, I love my country. Um, I've lived an amazing life and, uh, my family has, uh, benefited incredibly from growing up in this, in this country, but w we can do so much better. And so I've been the beneficiary of this amazing, uh, life and I, I have this big platform and there's a sense of moral obligation and um, and and this awareness that has come through education that um, though racism is not something I should feel guilty about because you know white people today didn't start racism we all have to feel responsible for it because until we actually confront it at the deepest levels, it's going to continue. And, and so we, we have to understand that, um, all of us, uh, we're, we're all unwittingly complicit based on just the way our culture is, uh, just, just our institutions and our culture have, have sort of put us all in this, in this country that we live in. And, um, so it's up to us to try to do something about it. Yeah. Is that, in your mind, the best way that white people can be allies during this time? Yeah. And, I, and I'm not even a big fan of the word allies because it, it so clearly implies that, there, you know, there's two different sides, you know, that um, I'm an ally to the, to, to black Americans. I, and, and maybe this is romantic, but um, you know, I, I just would rather feel like we're all Americans. Um, we were talking about the book, uh, white fragility. Um, Robin D'Angelo, one of the things she wrote about was um, Black History Month. The, the mere fact that we have Black History Month, it clearly implies that everything else that happens is just history, which implies that it's white history, right? So everything else that happens on earth, besides what happens to black people, is white history, which is just history. We don't, we don't have to call it white history because that's we are history. Right. And, and so she writes in her her book that she's all for, uh, you know, celebrating Black History Month. But just just the mere presence of it is proof that we look at black Americans as separate from our own history. And, and maybe the, the thing that she wrote that will stick with me forever, she said, uh, for example, uh, during Black History Month, we always celebrate Jackie Robinson. Uh, we we celebrate him as the man who broke the color barrier. 
And for a white person to admire Jackie Robinson from a place of comfort is really easy to do. We can sit back and go, man, what an amazing man. We can admire him. But what if we actually just spoke the truth and we said it like it really happened, which was that Jackie Robinson was the first black player who white people let play professional baseball, right? Like if you actually say it the way it actually happened, if you're a white person, you go, oh, oh, my God. Like, well, that's uh, that's not what I, we don't want to look at it that way because that's uncomfortable. Right. We much prefer to look at it just from the this, you know, fantastic look at the achievements. Um, and, and that's why maybe there should be some kind of a uh, curriculum in school where we actually confront um, what's actually happened in American history and and white people's. Um, complicity in the system that exists right now and confront uh, some of the atrocities that have happened. And it's not about guilt. Again, it's not about this is your fault or my fault. This is this is just about this is the way it's gone down. And we got to we got to do something about it. we have to confront it and, and change our our uh, our culture and our institutions to reflect that change. I've had to remind people, particularly over the last uh, few days, um, that uh, the difference between us and, say, Germany, which obviously had its own reconciliation that had to take place, is that you go to Germany, you don't find statues of Nazis, right? We had 800 Confederate statues in America. And uh, as I remind people, the late great John Lewis, when he got his head cracked open, marching for um, voting rights in Selma, the name of the bridge is called the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And Edmund Pettus was the leader of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. That bridge is still there and John Lewis is gone. And to me, that says everything about how we have sanitized our racial history so that we don't feel uncomfortable or we don't look as bad. Um, when that's not to say we deserve to, to wallow in self-pity, but it is to say that part of the way you have to move forward is by actually telling the truth. Right. About what we've done, um, being that we've done a really good job of solving racism over this podcast. Uh, I got one. We're good. We're, 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 we're good. Done. We're good. We're done. All right. All right. Good job. Everybody vote. Get police out of schools. We're good. I do have uh, one final basketball question for you. As people know, Warriors got the number two pick. Which, by the way, is only going to make people hate you more. I hope you know this. <laughs> They're like, you already got Steph, you got Draymond, you got Clay. Then y'all got the number one, the number two pick. Excuse me, really. Uh, uh, I know you will not tell me who you will draft, but what's it like to kind of be in this position to to have the number two pick? You know, like that's that's a bit of an unfamiliar position for you. Yeah, it's it's really exciting because we haven't had a high pick. I think we haven't had a lottery pick since Harrison Barnes um, about eight, nine years ago. And, and Harrison was a huge part of, of us winning our first championship. So we know how important this pick is. I think the most uh, the most important thing that's come from it is as we sit here outside the bubble watching the games and knowing we have the second pick, it's allowed all of us in the organization to watch every playoff game and, and realize how the league is changing um, year to year, who the, who the most talented players are, what the most effective strategies are. And then you kind of look at the crop of players available and you go, okay, who's going to, who's going to going to fit into all that. And we haven't really had a chance to examine that in depth for the last five years, thankfully, because we've been in the finals, so we, which is great. But this is the first time we've had to really examine our own team and the league. So it's been a really, really healthy uh, process for us. Is there a type of player that you've thought about that you want? <laughs> uh, you're really, yeah, you're really trying to. <laughs> That's right. See, dig, no wiggle room. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, we we learned a lot from our own uh, journey over the last five years. And, uh, you know, you, you got a guy like Steph Curry who has otherworldly skill. And if, if there's somebody like out like that out there, you got to consider him no matter what. If there's nobody with that kind of skill, then you really got to look at the playoffs and think, 
what's winning, you know, what's winning at the highest level. And these days, it's not really any secret, but but versatility, switchability, you know, guys who can guard multiple positions and stand up to the physicality. Those are all the important things. And um, so those are, you know, those are the characteristics and qualities we're, we're looking for. Mm. A very way to remain vague and secretive, Steve. That's how I like it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Steve. uh, Before I get you out of here, there's a fun game I like to play with all my guests. It is not Ask a White Dude. I promise you. Um, It's called This or That. I give you two choices. You got to pick one. And the fate of the the world depends on it. Small stakes. (laughs) So you'll be all right. I suppose the first question is not Trump or Biden. No, that's too easy for you. Are you kidding me? I could say Trump or this desk and you'd be like the desk. All right. Like, come on. I got to make this somewhat hard. Uh, You are a wine connoisseur. And so is your good friend, Greg Popovich. Uh, He is the wine master. So uh, between the two of you, um, who would you say is more likely to become a master sommelier? Oh, not even close. Not it's pop. He he actually sort of turned me on to wine, and I have n- nowhere near the uh, the knowledge or the passion that he's got for it. But the good thing is, uh, I just follow him around, and he brings out the wine, and I drink it. So it's a good arrangement. <laughs> All right, um, Sonoma Pinot Noir or Oregon Pinot Noir? Sonoma. 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 Yeah. All right. Why Sonoma? It's got a great flavor, and it's light, and and. Uh, I'm more of a I'm more of a Pinot than a Cab person, um, but I've taken to the uh, to the Napa Valley and Sonoma maybe maybe because I live there and so I started drinking you know uh, a lot of those wines, but they just go down a little little smoother to me than the Oregon ones. All right, uh, Moneyball or the Big Short? Big Short. We're talking Metallica. Uh, Enter the Sandman or for whom the bell toes? Enter the Sandman. <laughs> Look at that. You're definitive with these answers. I like it. And of course, uh, I saved the best for last. Barkley or Draymond? Draymond. Come on. You didn't even flinch. <laughs> <laughs> you really do love Draymond. No, I'm just kidding. My fellow Michigan Stater. <laughs> Come on. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you were. I was like, he's too slick to fall for this one. But just in case, I thought I would I would take a shot at it. Uh, well, listen, Steve, thank you so much for spending this time with me uh, on the podcast here. Really appreciated the conversation. And a, a lot of folks, uh, I think, definitely appreciate that. Um, you know, that you continue to raise very important issues, put yourself on the front line uh, because somebody in your position, you know, frankly, doesn't have to. And especially given all the success that you've had, I think is extremely admirable. So I appreciate it. And I know a lot of people listening to this podcast appreciate that as well. Well, thank you, Jamel. Um, big fan. And it was a pleasure uh, to be on your podcast and keep doing what you're doing. And uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, and as John Lewis said, keep getting into good trouble. Uh, Steve is getting out of here, but y'all know I'll be right back. Uh, final segment up next, Fucking I'm Bothered. I hate this time of year. I know some of you are wondering how that's possible since I live in Los Angeles. And by the way, today it was 90 degrees. But the reason I'm fucking bothered about this time of year is because it is pumpkin spice season. I think I wouldn't hate pumpkin spice season so much if people weren't so extra and determined to add pumpkin spice to shit that pumpkin spice don't belong in. Absolutely no one, not a single soul, nary a person asked for this. And here comes Kraft with pumpkin spice macaroni and cheese. Why? In my best Nancy Kerrigan voice. And even though this isn't directly related to pumpkin spice, I feel like I need to blame pumpkin spice for this anyway. Pop-Tarts recently introduced pumpkin-flavored Pop-Tarts. What in the raisins in the potato salad is this? The reason I reject pumpkin spice is because I feel like pumpkin spice is for people who shop at the farmer's market on Saturday mornings who drink room temperature water, who probably eat shit like vegan grits and say dumb shit like turkey bacon is better than real bacon. Pumpkin spice in all forms needs to be rejected 
It's terrible and it's unbecoming of this nation. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Berner is our technical director and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. Bye.